We're in 1 Corinthians 13 in our study today of the, of the book of Corinthians. This great chapter on love. A young man was uh, courting his uh, sweetheart and taking her out into the garden of the house where she lived and, and uh, thought he'd try to get a little kiss from her. And her, her son or her brother, that is, was hiding in a tree up in the, in the garden. And uh, he got out there, trying to be smooth and romantic, and he looks up at the moon and he utters this prayer. He says, Lordy, Lordy, up above, should I kiss the one I love? And the little boy hiding up in the tree hollered down and said, send her, send her down below, pucker up and let her go. <laughs> you know, love. There's uh, nothing more talked about and nothing more misunderstood, I think, in all the world than the issue of love. Poets write about it. Uh, books have been written, novels, uh, songs. What would we do without love for our songs and our novels and, our, and uh, almost everything we do? It's everywhere, isn't it? Uh, for instance, the greatest love story, probably most people think, has been written is uh, Romeo and Juliet by Shakespeare. Most everybody's read that. I had to read that in college and do a paper on it. And true to my contrarian nature, I wrote a paper on why this isn't a love story at all. It's a story about infatuation. Here are two teenagers, they don't even know each other, that are so lovesick they kill themselves. What kind of love is that? I mean, if that's love, I, I'm, I'm going to bow out of that. That's not much love. Uh, the love reminded me of the, uh, of the young man in love who said the first time he kissed his girl, there was a cold tingle that ran down his back. Her popsicle was dripping. <laughs> That's kind of love we talk about today. What is love? You know, what is love? Uh, there's only one way to know, and that is to go to the one who knows what love is, who invented love, who is the very essence of love, and that is our, our Lord himself. And we're so glad he decided to give us one book, one chapter in this book, in his scriptures, dedicated purely to the issue of love that we can understand what true love is. Uh, love is not necessarily an emotion that kind of goes against our, our Western idea of romantic love. Uh, love is not necessarily an emotion. We, we look at the 15 descriptions we're looking at right now. Not a one of them has to do in particular with love. Uh, it has to do with action. They're all verbs. They're all action verbs. Things that we do uh, as, uh, as a result of love. A description of what we do. That's what this love is about. Uh, and we see our, in our romantic environment in America where people get married because they're in love, right? What happens when they're not in love? What happens when the uh, fire has died down? What happens when uh, we see some uh, the, the enthusiasm and the emotions are not what they used to be? What do we do then? Well, the, about half of Americans get divorced because they're misunderstanding of what true love is all about. Now, don't get me wrong, emotions are part of love, but I think it's a benefit of love. I think it's a result of love. It's not the essence of love. They're the side benefit. The world today, I don't have to tell you this, our world is awash with hate. I mean, everywhere we turn, there's hate. We see these mass murders, and, and it's hate. We see Russia invading a country, and it's hate. We see that kind of genocide all over the world as hate. But it's not just what we see on the news. We see it every day. We see it on our roads. We see it in our families. We see it in our churches sometimes. We see it in our neighborhoods. We see it at work. Everywhere we turn, there's a, this massive amount of hatred 
going on in the world around us today is ugly, is painful. And yet we come to the scriptures and we find that our Lord calls us, his followers, to be the exact opposite of that. That we are to be the followers of the, of the author of love himself, who gave us the perfect example. And we who follow him want to imitate him in that love. So far we've discovered in 1 Corinthians 13 that without love we're nothing. Verses 1 to 3, uh, your life is a big empty zero. It's, a, it's empty. You'll come to the end of your life and you will realize you, had, you did not live for any real purpose. Your life is a zero. And so if you, you take that seriously, you want to know what love is, and you want to live love. And so the Lord, through the inspiration of the Spirit to the Apostle Paul, tells us uh, what love is. And he gives us 15 different descriptions of love. We've already looked at five. And uh, we started verse 4. Love is patient. It can wait. It's, it's a word specially designed for patience with people. Secondly, it's kind. That means useful. It's beneficial. It helps others. It goes out of its way to help others. It's not jealous, but it wishes well of others. It, is not, it does not brag. It does not try to build itself up. And that's because it's not arrogant. Rather, it's humble. And we gave this definition of humility last week that I hope was helpful. Humility is the grace to be all you can be and let somebody else get the glory. That's humility. It's hard to come by. I want to continue now by looking at seven more descriptions of love this morning that we, that we find in this wonderful passage of Scripture. Uh, and keep in mind, this is in the context of the local church. It's not necessarily about love and a marriage or a family. That fits, but it's primarily talking about this local church and its need for love among itself. And also we keep in mind that this is the love that, we, that had been exhibited by Christ who, who rescued us from hate, who rescued us from sin, and who gave us the absolute epitome of love as an example and as an action. So let's begin with verse 5 where it says, Love does not act unbecomingly. ESV translates this, the English Standard Version translates this, that love is not rude. That's not a bad translation, but it's not just about manners or politeness. Some of us could use some help there perhaps. But it's the idea of shame. Love does not shame other people. Love does not embarrass other people. Love does not, not at the expense of somebody else, make a joke that, that uh, hurts them. Uh, the rudeness at Corinth was pretty evident. Remember uh, chapter 11, the Lord's Supper? That's exhibit A here. It's, it's found throughout the whole book. But, but chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper. Remember they were coming together for the Lord's Supper. And they had what preceded it that we call an agape uh, uh, supper, those were common in the early church, and these agape suppers were, were preceded the Lord's Supper and so forth. The church came together to have a meal together, to do the Lord's Supper, to be instructed in the Word, to fellowship, to pray, and those types of things. And yet as the church came together here at Corinth, uh, they, uh, we found in chapter 11, amazingly, that some of the people who were wealthier and were able to get there sooner, they came, they may have brought some pretty decent food, but they ate it all up. And when the poor people and the slaves showed up after work, all that was left over was the pickles and the broccoli. I mean, that can't be right. Um, I made that part up, by the way. <laughs> church history informs us that the love feast was something that was started by the early church um, for the very purpose of providing one good meal a week for the poor, poor Christians. But when the love left, so did the food. 
And we found that there was all sorts of problems, not only in the biblical first century church, but throughout the early days of church history when they were still doing these love feasts on a regular basis. When the love is gone, what's left? The pickles and the broccoli. You know, what, what some, when you have love, you come to a potluck and you bring enough food for yourself and for several others. Uh, if you don't have love, you bring a bean salad and eat up the good meat that somebody else brought. That's, that's the difference. I, if you're convicted by that, that's your problem. Okay? <laughs> I remember when I was going to Moody, uh, Moody never had good food anyway, and on Sundays it had horrible food. Uh, it, they had leftovers or whatever they had, I don't know. But anyway, so I had a, a friend of mine was involved in a church, and they were having a potluck, and he invited me to go. So I went to the potluck with him, and I was pretty excited. We're going to have real food here, something worth eating. And I got there, and jello salads and garbage. I mean, I, was, I, was, I am scarred to this day, <laughs> as you can tell, that I remember that vividly, how disappointed I was that nobody brought any good food for me to eat, right? Well, although that's a little silly, we're looking at actually something that took much worse. This church, people were coming, they were gluttons, they were getting drunk. At the Lord's table, at the, at the agape feast, when the poor people showed up, they had nothing. What kind of love is that? So this, this definitely fits this church right here. There's another idea here as well. One uh, Bible teacher years ago translated it this way, love does not behave like a nut. Now, I like that. Uh, he's not saying there isn't a time to be silly and goofy. Some of us couldn't live without being silly and goofy. Uh, I'm, some have accused me of that. Uh, but this is a direct reference here to the services of the church. Chapter 14, and we'll get into in a few weeks, uh, this church was in absolute chaos when they came together. There was people over here preaching, there were people over here speaking in tongues, there were people over here that uh, were trying to outdo one another in prophecies, there was other people who uh, were not dressed appropriately, and it was so chaotic that he said in chapter 14, verse 23, if the unbelievers showed up at your church services, they wouldn't think God was there, they would think you're crazy. Now, who wants that? And so they're totally out of control. They're, love allows us to, to behave as it fits the occasion, as is appropriate to the occasion. You do not find disruption in a service or in a life that is exhibiting love. Now, here's the second one. Love does not seek its own. Uh, the ESV translates this, this way, does not want its own way. Love does not want its own way. I think this is the closest of the descriptions to a definition of love that you could probably find in these 15. It's, it's pretty close. It basically means that love is not selfish. Selfishness is so much a part of the DNA of sin that some people have actually defined sin as selfishness. But I think biblically it's broader than that. Biblically, uh, sin is, uh, is when we've come short of the glory of God. Sin is when we rebel against God in any form. But I do, I, I, you might think this through this afternoon. There are very few sins I can think of that don't involve selfishness. It's almost always about us in one way or the other. And the ironic thing is that the more selfish, selfish we are, the more miserable we are. The world knows that. Do you know that? The more selfish, self-centered we are, the more it's about me, the more miserable we will be. As a matter of fact, if I could give you a recipe for misery, if you want a recipe for misery, be self-centered. Be focused on you and yours and no one else. Just be selfish. You'll be a miserable, miserable per person. 
The most obvious, well, there's a book written in the 1800s by Henry, Henry, uh, Henry Drummond. This book was called The Greatest Thing in the World, and it's a book that was so powerful that it's still been printed today. One statement he made, he's talking about love, the greatest thing in the world. He's talking about love, and he said this, The most obvious lesson in Jesus' teaching is that there is no happiness in having and getting anything, but only in giving. Examine that in the life of Jesus. What did Jesus ever get from anybody else? <laughs> Very little. He didn't have a house. He didn't have stuff. He didn't have wealth. Uh, he, he, very few people gave him much. He, he lived a whole life of giving, and he was the most joy-filled person who has ever walked the planet. If you want to be miserable, it, it's all about you. If you want to know the joy of living God's way, manifest love in giving. The miserable person then is one who's self-centered. Everything has to go their way. Matter of fact, that's so common that someone has added a verse to one of our favorite hymns. It goes like this. This is for the self-centered Christian. Have mine own way, Lord. Have mine own way. Let me be in charge here just for today. I really don't need you. Say what you will. I got my own plan, Lord, so you can just chill. Now, that's a great verse of scripture. I hope you are a song. I hope you never sing it. But it fits pretty well with this self-centered person. Third, it's not provoked. The ESV translates it. It is not irritable. Uh, this term actually means it is, we're not quick-tempered. We're not easy to fly off the handle. Uh, it doesn't allow itself to become bitter and resentful. Uh, I'm going to look at that second aspect about bitterness in the next description. So I want to move on to this quick-tempered idea. When a person is selfish, as described here, that person will be in constant state of irritation. Have you noticed that in your own life? When, uh, when things aren't going your way, when you're frustrated and irritated, and the world is not cooperating with you? And have you, have you noticed how seldom the world cooperates with you? You know? I mean, uh, you look, at, look in your backyard. I was sitting on my deck today looking out the backyard. It's a beautiful day, 70-some degrees. A hummingbird is flipping around. The yard looks great. Wonderful. But you know, tomorrow it may rain, and the termites might show up, and I get another letter from the IRS, and I get some, some crank phone call, and I get this or that or the other. If, if you notice that the world doesn't always cooperate with you, uh, matter of fact, it doesn't cooperate very often. And if our reaction to these irritations is frustrations and bitterness and anger, uh, then we do not understand what love is all about. Irritable, irritable people are easily provoked people. They're happy when things go well, but they're irritated and frustrated and angry when they don't. They're just ready to explode. Fourth, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. I, I really like this one. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. I think the NIV captured the essence here. The NIV says it keeps no records of wrongs. Keeps no records of wrongs. See, there's another kind of person. They may never get angry uh, out loud. They may never throw a fit. They may never uh, you know, be provoked in that way. But they're quietly building up resentment and bitterness over something or some, or some set of things. This is an accounting term. So, so those of you that like bookkeeping should, should gather this one. It, it's, a, it's actually keeping a record of that which is wrong. That which has been done wrong to us. It's keeping account of those things. 
we were at a dinner the other day with uh, several pastors and different ones. We were sitting at a table, and uh, the pastor and his wife were talking about a counseling situation that they were involved with. And uh, they talk, talked about this individual who, uh, who came, a couple, and, uh, and they were trying to get to the heart of some of the issues, and, and the husband was kind of feigning like he really wasn't doing anything wrong. You know, and he said, I really can't think of what I'm doing wrong. And the wife pulls out a notebook <laughs> where she has been keeping records of his wrongs for, throughout their marriage, apparently, for years and years, a notebook of his wrongs. Do you think she missed the essence of love there? Well, he probably did too, but this is exactly a pure contradiction to uh, keeping records of wrongs. That's a, that's a very literal example of someone doing that. Now, you probably don't have a notebook at home or a journal where you're keeping the records of, of the wrongs of your spouse or your children or your friends. Let me suggest if you have one, you burn it. Don't put it in the garbage. Somebody might find it. All right? Uh, burn it. Get rid of it. You don't need it. The scripture says love keeps no record of wrongs. Let me turn that around to a positive angle. Let's say it this way. Love forgives. Love forgives. That's the positive of that. It's inevitable in this life that someone's going to wrong you and probably a lot. Somebody's going to step on your toes. Somebody's going to take advantage of you. Somebody's going to hurt you. You could have a record of hundreds of things over time where somebody and something has hurt you. And you could keep a record of that if you wanted to. But, when the, but those who are the followers of the Son of Love learn that forgiveness is what God calls for. Love forgives. Love forgives when people don't deserve to be forgiven. Love forgives the unforgivable. Matter of fact, um, go, to, go to Revelation for just a moment, chapter 20 with me. I want to show you something. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. This is what we call the great white throne judgment. Every unbeliever who's ever lived will be at this judgment. And they're going to stand before Almighty God at the final time. And as they stand before Almighty God, they're going to be condemned for what they've done. And there are going to be, I'm going to guarantee you this, I'm not going to be there, hope you're not. I'm going to guarantee there's going to be hundreds of millions of people are going to say, to say, why am I here? I've done no wrong. I've been a good person. I've treated my family right. I've been kind. I've, done, I've gone to church. I've done all these things. Hundreds of millions of people are going to say, I, don't, I should not be here. And then we find in this section, I won't read the whole thing, but in, in uh, verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. I want you to note two sets of books here. There is the book of our deeds. And in that book, God does have a recording, so to speak, of all the sins you've ever committed. Every last one, every thought, every, every attitude issue, every outward act of sin, it's in his book. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? There is a record being kept. But there's another book here. The book of life. In the book of life is the names of those whose sins have been forgiven. 
And Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that there will never be any condemnation for them. Every sin they've ever committed, every foul thought, every issue has been expunged. It's gone. The book of our deeds that would condemn us is opened and there's nothing there. It's blank pages because the book of life cancels out the book of deeds for the believer. So wonderful is that is to think that you and I who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, who never live perfect lives, who never have it all together, who never stop sinning at times. Every one of us will be stand before our Lord someday at another judgment seat and there will be no record of any wrong. The book will be open and it will say, the blood of Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and you are eternally forgiven. And so my friends, when I say that, I say this, that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, your, your, your record of wrong is still on the books. And as we sang this morning, in contradiction to what most people think, you will one day bow your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. You will recognize your sin and you will confess that he is Lord. But then it will be too late. Now is the time of salvation, Scripture says. If you want the forgiveness of Christ, He gives it to you because He is the, he is the forgiver. He is the essence of love. But it only is for those who are regenerated and those who come to Him. And so going back to our, our passage, we are to keep records of no wrongs for one another. So an Egyptian proverb says this, your friend, your friend will swallow gravel for you. Your enemies maximize your mistakes. So you can know the difference right there. Number five. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Verse six. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love doesn't. The thought here is that uh, love does not sympathize with evil. But with good. The Corinthians were proud of their tolerance of evil. First chapter five is exhibit A here. They had a man in their church living right among them. Committing immorality and they didn't care. They thought it was the essence of love to uh, ignore his sin. And Paul said through the inspiration of the Spirit, that isn't love, that's arrogance. Why does those who love care about the sin? Because they know that sin is destructive. They know what sin does to a life. They know what sin does to others in life. If somebody's gravely ill and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, I, 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 here's your problem, I can fix this, but I don't want to. Well, what would you think about that? You know, the, the, the remedy might be painful, but it saves your life. That's wonderful, right? And so we find here that, that people do, who love do not rejoice in unrighteousness because they see the ugliness of sinfulness itself and the need for a cure. And they're willing, therefore, to talk to somebody they love about a sinful situation. They're willing to step up and talk to them and try to call them to repentance. As Galatians chapter 6 says, that the stronger brother comes along and helps the weaker and restores them to their walk with God. Now there's another connotation here as well, and that is that love does not delight in exposing the weaknesses of others. Doesn't delight in exposing the weaknesses of others. There are certain Christians who seem to think that they've been called to point out the faults of other people. They call it the gift of criticism, I guess. Uh, I don't think there's any gifts like that in the Bible. Uh, they'll come up to, to somebody else and say, do you, do you, did you hear about that person? Did you, did you know what they said? 
Well, well, I heard this third or fourth hand, but I know it's true, and, and I'm going to tell you about it so you can know it's true too. They don't go to the person they're offended by. They don't go try to solve an issue. They just want to spread gossip and spread some, some uh, comments about somebody, some criticism. That's a common thing, isn't it? And we deal with that, don't we? I'm going to give you a takeaway today. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. All right, here it is. For this next week, and there will be a test next Sunday morning. For this next week, do not say a negative thing about anybody anywhere. For the whole week. You say, man, I can't get through the afternoon doing that. Okay, <laughs> Give it a try. And every time you get ready to start to say something negative about somebody... Remind yourself what I just said. You'll be tested next week. All right? So I doubt you'll get tested. But, but nevertheless, give that a shot. You'll notice how easy it is for you to begin to be critical, to say something negative about somebody else. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to somebody else and talk to them about something. If they have an issue, you talk to them. But don't tell me about it. Don't tell somebody else about it. Go to them. And do that. So that's your homework assignment for next week. It's too often we actually we also receive kind of a perverted joy at the faults of others. Why? Well, he talks about that in jealousy earlier. If somebody else is doing poorly, that means we're better than them, right? And so there's this perverted joy in doing that. But it never helps folks to listen to criticism. It never helps to criticize somebody else. We're not trying to help. And here's another thing. You'll find that if you are critical of someone and you tell that maybe your spouse or somebody else, you'll find that before long they also are critical of the same person for the same reasons. And maybe a year later or six months later, you're over that issue and you already forgot it, but they haven't. You have put seeds in their hearts of discontent and criticism. How... That's how it happens. That's how it spreads. That's, how, that's why sometimes families or, or friendships all have the same criticism because they've been putting seeds in the hearts of one another. One who loves doesn't do that. You're, a lot of you are planting gardens right now. You have noticed, I'm sure, that you don't have to plant weeds. You know, They come up on their own, but you have to plant the good stuff and cultivate the good stuff. And that's the same thing here. The easiest thing in the world is to criticize somebody else. And speak harshly of other people. It takes the essence of the power of God in love to speak highly and to be kind to people that we may have some problems with. Number six, it rejoices with the truth. Verse six, it's the other side, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. When a per, listen, here's a little takeaway today. What a person rejoices in is a good test of their character. What do you rejoice over? What makes you happy? What gives you joy? That will, that will take you right to your heart of what's really going on in there and your true character. The one who rejoices in truth is not a suspicious person. They're not looking for issues. They give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, if someone says so-and-so is a nerd, they don't necessarily buy that. They have to, they'll, they'll look into that. They're not going to buy somebody's assessment of that. A loving person wants to believe the best in others. At being a pastor for all these years, there's been many occasions when somebody's come to me and said, Here, here's a criticism of this person. Here's something I want to say about this person. Uh, you should check it out. 
And when I check it out, you know what I find? Often a lot of fake news. All right? When I check out a, a situation, often I find that the true truth is not what I was told. There's a whole different side to that. And of course, Scripture warns us about that all the time. Matter of fact, one of the great Proverbs says, don't you ever listen to one person who comes to you without, first of all, going to the other person. Always keep that in mind. The loving believer wants to know the truth, and they want to believe the best in others. I want to go back for just a moment to Luke chapter 15, point out something to you. In Luke chapter 15, we have perhaps the greatest uh, known, best known story in the New Testament, or at least one of the best. It's the story of the prodigal son. I'm going to just paraphrase that story for the most part. The prodigal son goes away. He breaks his father's heart. He spends his father's money. He wastes his life in an awful living. He's done horrible things. And by God's grace, it says he comes to his senses. And he comes home. And he seeks forgiveness, repentance. From, he repents or seeks forgiveness from his father. His father gives him complete forgiveness. He, he brings him back in the family. He restores him to the family unit. He throws a party for him. He wraps his arms around him. He loves him. Complete and total forgiveness. So far, so good. Then we come to the, the brother at the end of the story. And the brother won't even come to the party. He's so mad. He's so livid that he refuses to even come into the party. And the father comes out and says to the son concerning those things, what, what's going on here? And the son said, look, I, I have always been a good son. I've been the favorite. I, I've been one who's done right. I've stayed on the farm. I've worked hard. I've saved my money. I've never lived like my brother. And he's been out there wasting all that money, defaming your, your, your name. And here I am. And you never gave me this kind of party. I, don't, I want nothing to do with him. Now, why would he do that? Why would the father love him and forgive him and the brother doesn't? Because the brother now is in competition with his riotous brother. You see, before when his riotous brother was living poorly, the older brother looked great. But now he doesn't. And the brothers come home and, and everybody's happy. And on top of that, he's going to have a great testimony. He's going to go to testimony services and say, look how bad I was and look what's happened now. You know, the older brother wasn't into that. And it says in verse 32, the father is trying to admonish his son. He says this, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has become, begun to live, was lost, has been found. We had to rejoice. Look what the father rejoiced over. The repentance of his son. Now, here's the thing I really wanted to show you. As far as I can remember, the only place in scripture that tells us what angels rejoice over is in the same context of this story in the two, two stories prior to this. In the story of chapter 15 verses 1 to 7 of the lost sheep it says when the, when the wandering sheep has been restored it says this verse 7 I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then we have the parable of the lost coin. And the coin is found, verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What do angels rejoice over? What does the, the, the beings of heaven rejoice over? The repentance of a sinner. What do you rejoice over? 
I, we, we would want to think that we would like to be people who get joy over that which brings joy to heaven and joy to God. And so when he talks about these things here, he's talking about, in verse 6, the fact that we rejoice in the truth. And finally, love bears all things, verse 7. And he said to another, how much... Oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. And it says, love bears all things. There's our final one for the day. The word bear has two possible meanings. So I'm not sure which one Paul wanted to get, so I'm going to give you both of them. One means it bears in silence. All the annoyances, all the troubles, all the, these things that bug us, uh, it, it will endure, it will bear these things. You remember the song, and I think it was a poster and some commercials years ago, of a little boy carrying another little boy? And somebody says, isn't he heavy? Too big for you? And the boy says, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Remember that one? Love makes almost anything possible. See? And love makes almost anything bearable. Love is what gets the mother up at 3 o'clock in the morning for that new baby who needs to be fed and taken care of. Love is what enables us to bear the faults of other people. When we suddenly, love also enables us to bear the faults that we discover after the honeymoon. Love enables us to live with unlovable people or difficult people. Love, it bears all things. The word also means something else, and this is the second side of this. It means to protect. It means to protect, and that's what the NIV says. It always protects. Uh, instead of rejoicing in evil and talking about the faults of others, love conceals those faults. The verb itself means does not leak. All right? Does not leak. So we have a roof over our heads so that when it rains, the water doesn't come in. It shelters us from the rain, from the water. Uh, the roof, that's the design of the roof. Love is that barrier between us and the issues of life, the sins of life around us, all the troubles of life. Love protects us from those things. What a blessed thing it is, folks, to be under the roof of love, to be protected by love, protected by the love of a, of a good spouse, protected by the love of loving parents, to be protected by the love of God's people in the church. Love is that roof. Love is that protection. Love is the protector from the troubles of life. You'll see that kind of protection in a parent. Every parent knows their children have flaws. You start pointing them out to that parent, see what happens. There's a reason why the word mama bear has been coined. We protect those that we love. Do you protect other people? Do you love them enough to do so? The Corinthians were eager to believe lies, even against Paul. Paul says love protects, love blocks those things. I don't know about you, but as I'm studying and reading through this chapter, I'm convicted. I do see some improvement over the years. I also see a lot of areas where I continue to, to need a lot of work. I think the hardest thing in life to do in many ways is to love. Because it's counter to everything within us. It is, it is contrary to our nature that we were born with. It is not our natural bent to love other people. But we love because Christ first loved us. 
We love because the Holy Spirit is producing love in us who walk in the Spirit according to Galatians chapter 5. And yet we need more. Not only do we need the example of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example of love. Not only do we need to walk in the Spirit and the Spirit is producing the fruit of love in our lives. Those are all very, very important. But Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 reminds us that we need our minds renewed. That we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so the scriptures were given to us in this kind of passage to remind us over and over what true love is. We don't think like this normally, folks. We don't. This is not our natural bent. And so the Lord shows us that which we should be because each of these characteristics are the characteristics of Jesus Christ whom we want to follow and imitate. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you now for this great passage. It helps us to understand where you would have us be and how you would have us love. Lord, I pray for our church here today, each of us. Lord, as as we look at these things, we see first that you loved us so much that you died for sinners and offer us eternal forgiveness. Lord, we want to be that kind of people. We want to be followers in your footsteps. We pray you give us the strength and the power to do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.